All right, I'm going to start a new series of sermons specifically for the feast. I want to begin this, this afternoon in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul, in this chapter, is recounting some of the things that had happened in the Old Testament. And he said he did not want them to be ignorant here in 1 Corinthians 10, how that our fathers were uh, symbolically baptized when they went through the sea and under the cloud, and all ate the same spiritual meat and drank the same spiritual drink, and the spiritual rock that followed them was Christ himself. Many religions don't think Christ was involved in the Old Testament, but Paul makes it very clear here that he was. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You might notice here that uh, Paul, in speaking to a New Testament church, was referring to events from the Old Testament and history from the Old Testament. <clears throat> Now, these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, neither be idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So he's recounting the story from Sinai when the commandments came and how Israel forgot about God while Moses was gone and just went on about their thing. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day, 23,000. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. So some warnings here that Paul is giving from past history. Now all these things, everything he's just named, plus a whole lot more, happened to them for examples. God allowed some of those happen, things to happen to be examples. It didn't have everything to do just with those people back then. You know how we'll say sometimes, I'm going to make an example out of you. Well, God looked down at Israel and said, I am going to make an example out of you for future generations. So part of what he did to them was because of what they had done, and part of what he either did or allowed to happen was done for our sake. What we would later need to know impacted them at that time, to put it differently. Because God has the capacity to look forward in time to know what conditions will be, and he tailors his reactions to some degree based on what others will need later on. You think we don't have an impact for the future. Now, God is going to do some things here in the end time that will probably be used as examples <clears throat> for those who are to follow. If you're going to teach people in the world tomorrow, you may have to refer back to some of the events of the past world. Now we, as the Bride of Christ, will have no tears, no pain, no suffering, 
And there will come a time when all those things of the past will be forgotten. I understand that. But those people who come up in a resurrection will have memories. They won't just be blotted out, because it will be those memories that create the humility that is necessary for them to be taught. So some of the things that the church does at the end of the age, they will be reminded of. Remember those people that were living out there and had a wall of fire around them? Remember the lives they led and remember those who came preaching and teaching that if you didn't obey God, you would have trouble? Now you remember the trouble, right? Now are you ready? You wouldn't listen to them. Now will you listen? Yeah, I think I will, <clears throat> they'll say. <clears throat> so God knows what he's doing all the way through. <clears throat> These things happen as examples, and they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now, he thought at that time in his life that the end of the world was about to happen. Uh, he didn't have a clear view of prophecy. Some would say that Paul was a false prophet. Just because Herbert Armstrong had a view of some things that would happen and didn't know the timing, he was labeled a false prophet, wasn't he? <clears throat> so if Paul said this, then that makes him, if you use that logic, a false prophet as well. No, God didn't reveal to Paul the time. Christ was with him three and a half years and never told him. <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> throat's congested for some reason. I'm glad it's not a tome. I'll try a little water. Anyway, wherefore, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. If we think we stand now, <clears throat> we need to be careful lest we fall. And it's easy to think, well, we have this knowledge, we have this, we have that, and be lifted up in pride and take a fall. It can happen. It's happened to people before. Then he says, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. There's nothing that will come upon you and me, no temptation we can have, that is not the normal course for human beings. So if you think you're having a tough time, just realize you're in good company. It's the same temptation that comes upon everybody. You're not special and yours isn't all this much worse than everybody else's. So pity parties are out. <clears throat> but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. doesn't say he won't allow you to be tempted, tried, but not beyond what you can stand. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry, from anything that would take you from God. Do everything to stay in contact with God. Now, I'm laying a bit of a background because we're going to go back to the Old Testament. First place I want to go is the book of Nehemiah. <clears throat> and begin in chapter 8. 
The people were in their cities when the seventh month came, and they gathered themselves together, <coughs> and Ezra brought out the book of the law of Moses, which he eternally commanded Israel. Then he read out of that and spoke so that they could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month, which would have been on the Feast of Trumpets. And they were attentive to the book of the law. And he made a pulpit of wood, which he stood up on above all the people, in verse 5, and opened up the law, and the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Eternal, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped with their faces to the ground. I don't know whether they stood up for hours then, <clears throat> or whether after the prayer they sat back down, <clears throat> but it says here, end <clears throat> of verse 7, they caused the people to understand the law. So they expounded it, they explained it, much as we do today. We might read what the Bible says, and then spend quite a little time expounding and explaining and uh, not adding to it, but uh, helping it be understood better. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Then he told them that the day was holy to the eternal in verse 9. Uh, then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to them whom nothing, for whom nothing is prepared. Much like the command about the feast to bring our second tithe and to take care of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the Levite. Uh, we cover those four categories and we enjoy uh, that which God has provided for us. For this day is holy to the eternal, neither be you sorry. Now, there's a command about the feast. We are not to come here and be sorry or sorrowful or upset or frustrated. We came here to rejoice. One of the fruits of the Spirit of God is joy. So, I don't want to see any sorrowing around here or anybody feeling sorry for themselves for any reason during this Feast of Tabernacles. We're here to rejoice. For the joy of the eternal is your strength. So the tone is set. We're here to be joyful. We're here to laugh. We're here to fellowship. We're here to enjoy each other's company and not forget 1 John 1, where our fellowship truly is with the Father and the Son, but then it goes down to show that it is also fellowship among ourselves in the Lord. That is important. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be you grieved. So it can be holy, it can be serious, it can be important, and yet it isn't a grievous time or a sorrowful time. It is a joyful time. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions to help each other, to feed each other, to share, and to make great mirth. That's laughter. That's happiness. We have several activities planned of a social nature. We will spend a great deal of time reading in God's Word, but we also have those times 
to listen, as those people were doing, and then they sent them away to have merriment and laughter and mirth. So we're to combine worship of God with joy. Sometimes I think we may think that everything's too serious. Maybe, yes, these are serious times, and yes, life is serious. But we're here for eight days not to picture that so much as a time in the future when there will be great peace and happiness and joy over the entire earth. So if we are to live a life that symbolizes that during the Feast of Tabernacles, it needs to be full of joy and happiness and laughter. They made great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They took joy and happiness in the way of God. It seems oppressive to a lot of people when they have their desires to do this, that, or the other thing. But no, when they heard the law of God, they said, that's good, that's right. We will take joy in it. The way of God leads to happiness. All right, then it skips down to 14. They made booths and said they did that as it is written in verse 15. Uh, and this had not been done, verse 17, since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, or out of the wilderness, actually. So they had let it fall into disrepair. They weren't keeping the feasts. They weren't living in booths. They weren't following God's commands. Now notice verse 18. Also day by day, from the first day unto the last day. So they had daily services during the Feast of Tabernacles. He read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. So a holy day on the first and the eighth day, but they had regular services and read the Bible out of the book of the law every day during the feast. Now let's go to Deuteronomy 31. Here he says in verse 5, The Eternal shall give them up before your face, speaking of their enemies, that you may do unto them according to all the commandments which I commanded you. And then he gives advice in verse 6. They were about to go into the promised land. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Eternal your God, He it is that does go with you. He will not fail you, nor forsake you. We are at a time when we, too, are facing an opportunity to go into a land of promise, an opportunity to follow God's ways in this closing chapter of the world, and to be prepared to go into the new book, The World Tomorrow. And it's a frightening time, but even as Moses told them, it's here for an example and is written for us upon whom the ends of the world truly are come, not just as in Paul's day when he thought it was there to come.
And Moses called out Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of a good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Eternal, He it is that does go before you. He will be with you, He will not fail you, neither forsake you, fear not, neither be dismayed. That was quoted in the New Testament, that nothing can separate us from Christ there in Romans. Now notice verse 9. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, which bore the ark of the covenant of the eternal, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, every seven years during the feast, when all Israel has come to appear before the Eternal your God in the place which He shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children and your stranger that is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Eternal your God and observe to do all the words of this law. Where are we today? Let me rehearse just a little bit. Worldwide Church of God, or Radio Church of God at the time, was incorporated in 1933. We know from Jeremiah, from Daniel, and other places we've seen that we were to be in captivity for 70 years. Now, Israel went through a captivity back then of 70 years, but those were written down in books of prophecy, not just to them. In fact, some of those prophecies were written after they had already occurred to Israel and had to be for a future time since they were written afterward that there would be a captivity into Babylon that would last for 70 years. Now, Worldwide Church of God existed for almost 70 years and came apart, but it was in the middle of Babylon. It was in, if you will, a captivity of Babylon, trapped in it, couldn't get out of it. If you go from 1933, you come 70 years later to 2003. Now, we had come to understand, as a group, these 70 years. Daniel says, I understood by books, by reading Jeremiah. And Daniel wrote down about the 70 years where? In the end-time book of all books the only one that was sealed that would not even be understood until the end time. Therefore, the things that Daniel wrote were looking forward to the end time. Okay? So, he wrote down in his end time book about the 70 years. Now, he wrote it understanding that he was at the end of that 70 years' captivity, but he wrote it in an end-time book for us. So there is an end-time application, and if you don't believe that, go to Zechariah 2, where 
Zechariah is introducing the end-time church, the villages without walls, the two witnesses, the church coming together, seven taking hold of one man, and the seven golden candlesticks of the churches being fed by the two witnesses. So there is a 70 years at the end spoken of by Zechariah, echoing what Daniel said. Now we knew, and we came west looking for a place. Looked high and low, couldn't find a place we could afford. Didn't know what to do. Settled in St. George, mostly in Kanab, wondering where around Zion can we roost? Where can we go? And waited a while. From 2000, really, when this group first started on Feast of Trumpets in 2000. And started moving over here after the feast in 2001. And looked some more. And I'd been looking from 96 on to find a place. Hadn't found one. Knew where it needed to be was somewhere in this general area. And then after the feast in 2002, we looked at this land we're on today and were able to make a purchase under very favorable terms. And we moved here, actually divided the land up, I think it was the third weekend in January of 2003. Right at 70 years after the church had been organized in 1933. We were allowed to go even to Babylon, as Malachi 4 puts it, but to be in the wilderness, the desert, the mountains, and be away from Babylon, to have our own land where we could get away and develop hopefully a godly society, which we're still working at. Seventy years. Maybe to the month. I don't remember now when it was incorporated, but many, many things, good and bad, happened in January throughout the history of Worldwide Church of God in those years. Now, we find, if we go back to Deuteronomy 1, that they were on the edge of going into the promised land. And Deuteronomy starts out with instruction. We just read some of the instruction in Deuteronomy 31. That every seven years, the law of God, the book of Deuteronomy, is to be read at the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, from 2002, when we bought the land right after the feast, This is now seven years since we were on the edge of going into the land at the feast in 2002. And we left the cities of Babylon and started our own community out in the wilderness shortly after the 70 years, or about the end of the 70 years. And by January, divided it up and officially moved on. Now, if you take the 70 years up to 2003 and add seven to that, 
by January of 2010, we will have been seven years. But this is the seventh Feast of Tabernacles. Now, it was after the Feast of Tabernacles in 2002 that things began to open up and the purchase took place. And we divided it in January. So we have come from the time that Herbert Armstrong first instituted the church, almost 77 years. I find that a very interesting number. I don't know whether it means anything or not, but God uses sevens a lot. What happens next? Where do we go from here? Is the timing right for the next push forward in the, in the coming months that we have ahead of us? I don't know that, but I'm taking an educated guess based on the history that has occurred in the past that probably we'll see some kind of movement in the next few months between now and Passover. What shape those will take, we shall see. And I don't like to get into prophecies and timing. I don't know, and I'm not predicting anything. I'm just saying, we went through the 70 and something happened. Now we come to the Feast of Tabernacles after seven years, and I am going to spend this feast reading this book of the law before all the people, because that's what God said needed to be done. And they were on the verge of going into the land when that instruction was given. Are we on the verge of going into the land? I think it is interesting that we are at the base of the Canaan Mountains. Mount Canaan is right up here, just northwest of us. You will read when we get into Deuteronomy 1 that they came to the land of the Amorites. Moreites is more men. Ites means people of or men of a certain person or personage. So the Moreites and the more men are essentially the same word. Before we get into this, I would like to take a few minutes to go back to the book of Genesis. I think there's something very interesting that plays out here. Uh, I want to go back, oh, to chapter 8. We had had a thousand years in which, from Adam until Noah, mankind had multiplied and replenished the earth and had done all kinds of things, and had wound up in such deep sin that God decided, I'm just going to wipe them out. But there was one righteous man, and he said, okay, I'll save him and his family. You know the story. He built the big boat. Now, this is interesting, because if you have bought evolution, and everyone in this room has bought it to some degree or another, whether you believe in God or not, it is so heavy in the teaching and thinking of this world, and you went to the schools of this world, it is hard for us to adjust our thinking to think those people back there could have been smart enough to build a big boat. 
they had lived a thousand years. And we think that they were too hairy and dumb. They were smarter than we are. They hadn't gone through 6,000 years of degeneration and bad food and sin and wretchedness that we are the product of. I am sure they were far sharper. Their minds, their bodies were not full of mercury and lead and zinc and arsenic and, you know, on and on. Plastics. Whatever. Now, as dumb as we are, do we grasp that from 1903, when the first manned flight that we know of occurred on a beach in the Carolinas, less than one man's lifetime later, we were traveling in space? From 1903 to the 60s. A man born in 1903 would not have been 70 years old. And we went from horse and buggy to the space age. Now, what could those people have done? Their smartest people did not die. They kept on living and learning for a thousand years. Now, God told Noah, go build a boat. And Noah didn't say, Lord, what's a boat? Those smart people had had boats before that. Who knows? They may have flown before that. We did it from horse to space. In 60 years, remember, doesn't take long. Anyway, he built a boat, big boat. Put lots of animals and a few people on it, and it floated. And then it landed. Now, when they came off of there, God again told Noah, like he had Adam and Eve, go out and... Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And Noah lived, what was it, 450, 350 or 450 years after he got off the ark. Uh, that's over here somewhere. I don't want to, to take a lot of time going through all this, but yeah, he lived 350 years. That's in chapter 9, verse 28. And he lived 950 years altogether and died. And then his sons lived up to over 500 years of age and had lots of kids. And they replenished the earth very, very rapidly. Now, there were three basic tribes that came out of that. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in the days of Peleg, down in chapter 10, verse 25, the earth was divided. Now, there's divided opinion on what that means. Some thinks it means the continents were separated. Others think that Mankind was dispersed around the earth. But the earth was divided up at any rate. And we know that people did go all over the earth because people are all over the earth, aren't they? 
Anyway, in chapter, verse 32 of chapter 10, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. He'd gone through all of their genealogies. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So the peoples were divided, for sure, into these three basic uh, peoples. So you have the Oriental from Japheth, we have the Hamitic, basically the black races, and we have the Shemitic, which were the essentially the white races, or that's kind of a misnomer, the beige races then. And the things in between uh, are mixes, such as the North American and South American natives, uh, which we call Indians, basically. They were a mixture primarily, it looks like, of blacks and orientals. Their blood does not show much in the DNA tests now being taken of the Semitic background, but more of the others. There's some mixing altogether for sure, but that's generally the way that appears to be. So, from where the ark landed, civilization began. Now, they had one language in chapter 11, and they got together and they said, we don't want to be scattered and we don't want to, we want to make a name for ourselves, so let's build a tower that goes to heaven. Now, whether they literally planned it to go that far or whether they were using it as a monument and they thought that they would rule on the earth like it were heaven, or maybe they had plans to fly to heaven, I don't know. But they were the progeny of some pretty smart people. And exactly what they had in mind, I do not know. But God did not want them to have that kind of a powerful empire. So he confused their languages. And then they began to argue and fight. And they couldn't understand each other. And they got so deeply frustrated that they all departed in different directions. And were divided around the world according to those three basic tribes, and then the intermixing that occurred from there. Now, somewhere along there, Abram was born, and Abram was told a little later in life that he was to leave the land of his father, and that he was to travel to a different land that God would show him. It wasn't next door. It wasn't a land that he knew. It was a land God would have to show him because it was one he apparently didn't know. Now here, the plot begins to thicken a bit. Ruth Shelton has been doing quite a bit of studying in the last couple of years or three. Uh, she did this partially as a takeoff on what we've learned about the possibility of this being the original promised land and being of black blood, partly at least, she decided that she would look into the possibilities that might have come from how people got where they are from the time of the promised land being here. And she has traced... And this is in books. It isn't just something she did, but she traced it in the Bible. 
and she has traced it through quite a few books she has read. And there are pictures of the black presence in South America. Quite a bit of that. And DNA testing is now showing that there is black mixture along with primarily Japhetic or Asian in the North American Indians as well. So, from the cradle of civilization, the tribes did not necessarily go, the black ones, straight to Africa. But there are many, many examples that can be found, and archaeologists have found them, of black presence in Central and South America. Very interesting. I don't want to go into that. I don't have enough information on it to make any conclusions at this point. But she postulated something that I think is very interesting and may add another piece to the puzzle and explain some things that have been a question. Because any time you learn something that is new, uh, you take some here, some there, some somewhere else, and you begin putting the story together. But there inevitably are pieces that you don't know what to do with, and how could this have been? So let's speculate then a bit. You heard the word I used here. This is not gospel, this is speculation. What if this area we are now in, the western United States, was the original Garden of Eden, was the original Zion, turned out to be the original cradle of civilization, this is where God made Adam and Eve. And they began to spread out from here. And they became very, very sinful, and God destroyed them in Noah's day. Now, that was a seafaring boat that Noah built. It was a huge boat. And they say they've not had such a big boat in modern times until the late 1800s, perhaps. Somewhere right in there. This was a huge floating ark. Now, if the waters came up all over the earth, and all men everywhere drowned, and that boat floated for a few months, it could have very, very easily have floated across the Atlantic. It could have floated to the nation of Turkey. It could have floated and landed when the waters assuaged on Mount Ararat, where they say there are sightings of something that looks boat-like, and we get all kinds of reports about somebody that's got a piece of wood that came from it. I've had people offer me pieces of the cross down in Mexico City, too. You know, and, and, I, and I thought, how big was that thing, you know? A million visitors a year come through here, and each guy buys a piece, Maybe it multiplies like the fishes. <laughs> so, you know, you never know for sure what to believe. I don't believe he was trying to sell me a piece of the cross, and I told him so. And I said, I'm not a Catholic. He says, well, buy it for your Catholic friends. And I said, I don't have any Catholic friends. I was kind of mean and young and stupid in those days. Now I'm old and stupid, but moving on... <clears throat> 
What if that boat had landed somewhere over in the Middle East, say Mount Ararat, for instance, and they had walked down into what mankind and archaeologists today call the cradle of civilization. Now, remember, the first cradle of civilization started with two people. The second cradle of civilization, wherever it was, started with eight. Now, that could have been east of Ararat. They could have gone eastward, as it says that they did, toward the land of Shinar and the area where we now know as Iran and Iraq. Now, archaeologists have dug up a lot of stuff over there showing that there was very early civilization there. But Abraham, at some point, was told to leave there and go to a land that God would show him. Now, remember, they still knew how to build big boats then. And Noah himself lived for 350 years after the flood. They could have built another boat. Could they not? And maybe instead of poor Noah spending 100 years on it, maybe with his son's help, I don't know, Maybe they could have had 500 people work on it. In other words, they could have built another big boat pretty easily. Wouldn't have had to have been as big as that one to go across the Atlantic. Thor Heidel came across the Atlantic in a bamboo raft. I've seen it over Norway. Well, it's a little more than that, but not much. There was traffic back and forth all over the world from the beginning of time. Those people were smarter than we are. And they knew the earth was round, except for a few dummies who thought it was flat. Do you suppose that if the original Garden of Eden was here, and the original cradle of civilization was here, that when God confounded their languages, very possibly in the land of Shinar, in the land of Iraq and Iran today, that those people then went all over the earth. The Asians are the, uh, what am I trying to say, the uh, Japheth went basically east to, into what we call Asia today. The blacks may have come across to North America may have moved down through Central and South America. Some of them may have gone to Africa. They may have gone and been driven down through Central and South America, built some monuments there that are obviously done by black people, and come across back even into Africa from there. Because some of their people had gone there, and because of persecution and difficulties or whatever reasons, they may have expatriated and gone back and left a lot of their blood behind and the Mesclaza races of Central and South America and of North America? I don't know. But to me, there is a big piece of the puzzle that could very well fit. That it started here, was reduced to eight, the ark landed there, Abraham went from there to here, but he stayed there a long time. And those people from Nimrod's day in Babel 
had scattered all around the earth so that they may have come back here first. You see, some of these people and their lives overlapped. You can have a lot of kids and build a big population in 350 years. Noah himself was telling the stories for 350 years. If somebody had said, Noah, I want to build a boat. How do you build a boat? He could have told them. Then no problem. There's evidence that they had boats big enough to go around the world in those days. So I can see, I think, possibly a much clearer picture now. And it would explain why so much of the archaeologists shows, archaeological study shows those ancient civilizations in the Middle East. We'll see a little bit more now as we get into this in Deuteronomy because they went into the land of the Amorites. If you go back into the genealogy there in Genesis, I won't take the time for it. It shows that Ham, one of the sons of Noah, <coughs> had a son named Canaan, and that through that line came the Amorites. The Amorites may have been black, or by then they may have been mixed. I do not know. They might have been mixing all along. So instead of being black when they came here, they might have been brown. Who knows? All three sons, remember, and their families, until the days of Nimrod, all spoke the same language. It's very, very possible that the three races came through Noah's three, son three daughters-in-law. So intermarriage may have happened very quickly and very rapidly, since languages were the same and they were all related. Would have been natural. Think about it. When Joseph went into the land of Ham, which the Psalms say at least three times, Egypt was being ruled at that time by black folk. And Pharaoh gave Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, wives of the prince of the land, princesses of Egypt. Now, this one will blow you away if you're racist. Ephraim and Manasseh probably married black girls. And God grafted those races together way back then. Is there any room left for racism among you beige? I don't think so. We're poised right now, not in Utah. That is the official domain of the Morites, the Mormen. 
Now, Mormons scattered into Idaho and California and Arizona and other places. But the main body of them are in Utah, and that is the governmental official Mormon land. That is the only state in the Union where, on the news, they talk about the church and give news on the church, and it's all Mormon. Now, there are Catholics and Baptists in Utah, but they don't talk about the church as being Catholic or Baptist. When they mention in the news the church, it's the Mormon church, the Mormon president, the Mormon this, the Mormon universities. That's what's on the news. There is no other state in the United States of America that does that. There is not a state that is predominantly Catholic and they talk about what's happening over at the parish only in Mormondom. I think God put us outside of Utah, barely, on purpose. I think that soon He will allow us to go through the mountains of Canaan. Canaan was the son of Ham. And there may be Amorites living in Utah today. They may be a mix. They may be the Indians. Who knows what has happened? Maybe even some of the Mormons themselves are Amorites. I don't know. But I hope you'll be praying to go into the Promised Land and that God will soon open the doors for us to go to Zion and to Jerusalem, and back to the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think it is very plausible to at least consider and perhaps study further that the first civilization was here, and that's why God brought us here, that the ark floated over there, and civilization started over again, and then it repopulated from there after Babel all around the earth. And that later, Abram was sent, and some of those peoples had come back to this land, and God said, I'm going to displace them because this is the land I'm giving you. Thank you for your research. Keep up the good work. It may be that this piece of the puzzle now fits. All right, let's go into Deuteronomy, because they at that time... And maybe that's the reason God saw to it that Moses instructed them to read this book. Now, Moses had written four other books. But he was writing specifically about the book he was finishing at that time and saying, read it. Now, in a general sense, maybe they could have read from the other books of the law, but Genesis was a story of the genesis of man. And that type of thing, whereas Leviticus and then Deuteronomy were basically the books of the law, but Leviticus had already been written, and Moses was summarizing his life and summarizing the history of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. And I think that he was referring to the book he was writing as the one of his books that he wanted referred to the most. 
In Leviticus, Exodus, they were not poised to go into the promised land. Exodus was at the beginning of the 40 years. Leviticus was written shortly thereafter to give the law to them. Deuteronomy is the summary book at the end of Moses' life, just as they were poised to then go into the promised land. So it is the last instruction to be read every seven years of the year of release, just as they were released to go into the promised land at the death of Moses. So let's look at this book from that standpoint and from our perspective as we are poised to receive some of the the blessings that God promised of the promised land. Now you might say this could not be it. I think with the information that was introduced today, it could very easily be shown that it is highly possible this was it, and there were two cradles of civilization. One here, later one there. And it remained desolate here and was later repopulated. And after Israel sinned, it lay desolate for many generations, which has never happened since that is Jerusalem over there has been established. So let's read Deuteronomy not as ancient history. Let's read it as a people who are poised on the edge of the promised land and of the promises that God says he will give to his end-time people. So this instruction is what was given to them just before they went in. Now we've got nearly a 77-year history here, and I think things are getting pretty close to breaking loose. It looks like it in the world, and it looks like it in the history of the church. How soon that will be, it might be another year or two or three, I don't know. But I just like to play with sevens when they come up and consider them as possibilities. Okay? And since this is the seventh year since we actually came into the land and began to inhabit it after 70 years captivity in Babylon... And the promises of the end-time blessings of God are just ahead, whether it's six months or a year or two or three. It's very close, that we know. So let's look at it, because we're not commanded to read this again for another seven years. Now, I know I went through it in a Bible study. Oh, it's not been but, what, a couple years ago, I guess. took a while. But... uh, this is a, I, I did that on my own, I guess. This is commanded. So, this is our seventh year. Let's get on with it. These be the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side, Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Topol, and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. There are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. That will probably mean something one of these days. And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month. So the eleventh month is the February, March, right in that general area. 
12th month coming up to April, where the first month begins. So this was in late winter, very early spring. Uh, let's see, I figured it out more like January into February, perhaps, depending on whether you had 12 or 13 months or whatever. But anyway, that time of the year, after the 40 years, they'd gone in uh, and escaped out of Egypt in April, and here 40 years later, it was not quite 40 years, but coming up on it very closely. In the 40th year, not yet fully 40 years. On the first day of the month that Moses spoke to the children of Israel, according to all that the Eternal had given him in commandment to them. Interesting, we read this at the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's talking about the time leading up to the spring holy days as the story is introduced. Maybe in the year that these things come down, there is some connection there between the Feast of Tabernacles and the first of the year, because that's when they would actually go into the land, and that's when God says that he will bring the blessings as in the first month, there in Joel and other places. Anyway. He spoke to them then according to all that the Eternal had given him in commandment to them. So he is going to rehearse and review and speak on the things that God had given them from the time that they left Egypt until this moment. After he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edrei. Edrei. Interestingly, the Amorites correspond very closely linguistically to Mormon. And then you have Og, a king of the Amorites. And here we have Ogden, or Ogsden, up north of Salt Lake City. That may sound far-fetched, but then Steve Collins built a whole book on two letters, S-C. Sac, Saxon, Isaac. Here we have the name spelled out, out in Ogsden and in Morite or Mormen. Is that coincidental? Maybe. I don't know. We shall see. On this side, Jordan, in the land of Moab, we also have a Moab, Utah. Only place on earth named Moab is in Utah. Nothing in the Middle East is named Moab. Is that just a modern coincidence? I don't know. Time will tell. Began Moses to declare this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough in this mount. Time to get out of here. Turn you and take your journey and go to the mount of the Amorites. So he said, You've sat long enough where you are. Now it's time to move to the mountain of the Amorites and to all the places near there, in the plain, in the hills, and in the vale, and in the south, and by the seaside to the land of the Canaanites, and in Lebanon to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, basically, Hamitic peoples. Canaanites were of Ham. Amorites were of Ham. And probably mixed by that point. Were they here then? Did they go down through Central and South America where there are very, very obvious traces of them? 
and then back over to Africa. Maybe some went down there in the first place. I don't know. But I think it is certainly worth considering, especially since the marks and traces of their passage are all through Central and South America. That can be proved in books. To Lebanon, which means white, and we do have an area of white cliffs over here, predominant in the secret places of the stairs. What about the great river, the river Euphrates? People often name things where they go after what they were, where they were. We have in America, New London, we have London, we have Paris, Texas, we have places all over the United States named after their original counterpart in Europe when the pilgrims came across. People do that. They name things after what they had back home. New Bronzeville, Texas, named after Bronzeville in Germany. It goes on and on and on. So was the original Euphrates, the four rivers coming out of Zion here? Have the names been changed over the years while Noah was gone and before Abram got back? And some of the names that we have here of the rivers and the mountains in this area were named less than a hundred years ago. What were their original names when people inhabited this land before? Because they did. And it's been proven that people have been living in this area for thousands of years and not just Indians. Where was the original Euphrates? We know where the current one is in the land of Iran, Iraq, Shinar, east of Ararat in Turkey. I find that very interesting. Anyway, behold, I have set the land before you. Uh, well, remember also that uh, Abram, Abraham at that time went south into Egypt. And there are many, many sites on the internet today that talk about an Egyptian city built within the walls, back in the walls, and openings in the Grand Canyon. It talks about the great river that went into the sea. We call it maybe the Colorado today. Could that have been the original Nile that went through the original Egypt in this country and down into the sea? Just a question. I don't know. Anyway, behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Eternal swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them and to their seed after them. Now that echoes what we've talked about before. The land that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob walked on is the land God said He would give to their seed. Who are the seed of Abraham? Who is the seed of Ephraim who would have the best land today? It's right here in the United States of America. The children of Ephraim, the children of Manasseh, do not live in the Middle East in any form or fashion. And yet in the latter days, which will be referred to in this book shortly, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be in the land that they walked. If I am an Ephraimite today, I must be walking 
on the land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where do I walk? Right here. Or God is a liar. It's that simple. The land that they walked is where Israel is today. That has to be. It cannot be any other way based on Scripture. Now, pieces of the puzzle have to fit one by one by one until we have the complete picture. We do not have the complete picture yet, but I think little by little it is forming. I do not think we're going to have to move from this land. We may scatter across it in more villages, but we're not going to move out of it. And we may move north into the land of Canaan, where Abraham originally displaced the Canaanites, and they moved on. Did they move south? They may very well have. Was it south into that Egypt that Israel was taken captive in the land of Ham? Very possible. And the wandering occurred right around here, and they wound right back up in the promised land. Go to the land which I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them and to their seed after them. And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you myself alone. Moses said, I'm overwhelmed. There were a lot of Israelites. The Eternal your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. There were perhaps at least three and a half million, we've supposed, 600,000 men, not counting women and children, who came out in the Exodus. So it could have easily been three, four million. <clears throat> and they multiplied some more out in the desert, I'm sure. There's no TV. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are as the stars of heaven for multitude. The eternal God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as you are. So he said, don't stop now. There's lots of you. Get a thousand times bigger than you are now. <clears throat> Look at where Israel is today in Western Europe, North America, and we are probably a thousand times bigger now than we were then. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? You guys are always arguing and fighting and murmuring and complaining, and he says, it's just too much for me. And I said, take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. So God had directed through Moses' father-in-law that he set up an organization of judges so that he could take the pressure off himself, and God backed that up. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have spoken is good for us to do. Yeah, we have trouble getting to you. You know, with long lines out here waiting for Moses to settle a fight. So we like this idea. So I took the chief of your tribes, wise men and known, and made them heads over you, captains over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, over tens, and officers among your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, 
and judge righteously between every man and his brother and the stranger that is with him. That has been perverted in our land today. We had laws based on the laws of God, based on what's in Deuteronomy. But we've departed from them, and now we are sick from head to foot, and there is no justice in the land. Judges are bought. Senators are bought. But this is what God set up originally. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. And the cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. So we had lower courts, tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, and then the Supreme Court, which was Moses himself. And he said the judgment would be God's. So God had bought into this. For those who do not believe that there should be organization in the church, it goes all the way back. All the way back. It always has been. They never had roundtable discussions ever in the history of God's people. Never. Put that one to rest, please. Verse 18, And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. And when we departed from Horeb, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Eternal our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, You are come to the mountain of the Amorites, which the Eternal our God does give us. Now he had shown that Egypt and the promised land to be were pretty close together, didn't he? Eleven days from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, which was the Edomites, Esau, to Kadesh Barnea. So, you have a mix here where they were going into the land of some black people, the Amorites. The black people had also, while they were there, ruled Egypt, it appears, the land of Ham. There were black people all over the place, around probably this area. And later they moved. And they left their seed behind. And it's exploding some myths to understand that now that they're testing with DNA, they're finding that of the three principal races that God designates, the brown people aren't one of them. But they are mixtures primarily of black and Asian, not white. I find that very interesting. Because there's brown folks all over. North and South America. So that means that some of the Asians and some of the blacks must have been here to get together and make brown. Okay? Talks about the mixed races. Okay, where was I? Uh, verse 20, And I said to you, You are come to the mountain of the Amorites, which the eternal our God does give to us. So they were going to be given that land. The Amorites would be run out. The people of Canaan and Ham would go away. They wouldn't be there anymore. It's going to be given to Israel. 
Behold, eternal your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has said to you, Fear not, neither be discouraged. I'll tell you something. The Indian lands, the brown races, right now, are trying to get the land of America back for themselves. They were here, perhaps as children of the Amorites, mixed breed, when Israel came over from northwestern Europe this last migration. And they had the land patented from the Queen. It was taken away from them, and they have been maligned, misused, and abused ever since. All kinds of treaties were made, and every one of them to date have been broken, as far as I know. And they even had in the government, like you had Social Security put in for you, remember? And they've now spent it, and it isn't there anymore. Social Security's about broke. You've paid in all your life, and now if things go on, you won't get any back because it'll all be gone. They did the same thing with the Indians' money. $36 billion they had set aside for them. And they spent most of it on the Vietnam War and other conflicts since. Now the Indian bank account and the U.S. government is gone. And now the Indians across the country are talking about, we don't want your billions back, we want our land back. Wouldn't it be interesting if they were to go back to the original land patents and the land, BLM, Forest Service, the national parks, be given back to the Indians, who may be Amorite mixture in blood, and then God gives us some of that land back? Wouldn't that be an interesting turn of events? I know there's a movement going on toward that end right now today. Don't know if it'll happen that way. It's just, again, there's that word speculation. But it would fit if it happened that way, what we're reading here. So he said, Go in to possess it, and fear not, neither be discouraged. And you came near to me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us. And he's rehearsing their history for them. We will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. And the saying pleased me well, and I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe, and they turned and went up into the mountain, and came into the valley of Eshcol, and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands, and brought it down to us, and brought us word again, and said, It is a good land which the eternal our God does give us. Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Eternal, your God. He brought them across the Red Sea. Their shoes hadn't worn out, even though they were wandering in the wilderness. All those years, that had manna come down from heaven to feed them, that had quail fly into camp when there were no quail, miracle after miracle, and then God says, I've decided I'm going to take you out of this waste, howling desert where you do nothing but bitch and complain anyway, and I'm going to take you into the land of Eshcol, you send spies in there, they come back with all these wonder, grapes so big you couldn't carry them. And they rebelled. I don't want to go up into the promised land. I'm scared. 
Cleve. God's not a Jew, is he? Anyway. And you murmured in your tents. They hadn't got over that in 40 years. And said, because the Lord hated us, he brought us forth out of the land of Egypt. They've been whining that for 40 years. To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. He brought us out of there, parted the Red Sea, got us across, wandered around for 40 years because he had in his mind all along that he was going to turn us over to the Amorites and they were going to kill us. That was his plan. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. Boy, they had stuck to it, hadn't they? How shall we go up? Where shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. The story just got bigger and bigger. Walls go clear to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. Oh, there's giants in the land. Then I said to you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. So after all their whining and crying, God, Moses said, Don't worry about it. The Lord your God, which goes before you, he shall fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how that the Eternal, your God, bore you as a man does bear his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. He said, wait a minute, let's get real here. You'd have died out there if God hadn't brought you through that desert. Gotten your water out of rocks and quail out of the air and manna out of the skies. And you still don't believe. You're afraid. Living in fear. Yet in this thing you did not believe the Lord your God. It all comes back to faith and trust, doesn't it? That has been a very scarce commodity. You didn't believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night to show you by what way you should go, and in a cloud by day. He's promised us the same thing. He's going to put a wall of fire around us and a covert from the heat and protect us here in the end time, just like he did then. Do you believe it? Or do you think he brought us out here for the Chinese and the Germans and the Russians to kill us all? What do you believe? We still worry about our jobs and our health. Give us a break. Give God a break. When will we believe the eternal God who created us? And walk forward, trusting him in faith, knowing that everything's going to be all right. There is not one of us here. Unless it is because of unbelief, he is left behind in the tribulation that is going to starve to death. Not too many of us look like we're in any immediate danger anyway. <laughs> Me included. Verse 34, And the Eternal heard the voice of your words and was angry and swore, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swore to give to your fathers. Save Caleb, <coughs> the son of Jephunneh, 
He shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he has trodden upon, and to his children, because he has wholly followed the eternal. Only two came back with a good report. The rest said, they got the Anakims, we can't do this thing. So he says, Caleb's going in. Also the eternal was angry with me for your sake, saying, you also shall not go in there. Moses had messed up himself. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So Caleb and Joshua were the ones who brought good reports, and Joshua would be picked as the leader to lead the men. Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, little bitty kids, they shall go in there, and to them will I give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn you, and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Eternal. We will go up and fight according to all that the Eternal our God has commanded us. And when you had girded on every man his weapon of war, you were ready to go up into the hill. Oh, they changed their mind. Well, I guess we'll obey God after all. But God wasn't happy with them at that point. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Go not up, neither fight. When God told them to fight, they wouldn't fight. When God told them not to fight, they did fight. Or to fight, they wouldn't fight. For I am not among you, lest you be smitten before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not hear, but rebelled against the command of the Eternal, and went presumptuously up the hill. And the Amorites, which dwelt in that mountain, came out against you and chased you as bees do. You ever been chased by bees? And you run. I've done it. And destroyed you in Seir, even to Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Eternal, but the Eternal would not hearken to your voice, nor give ear to you. So you abode in Kadesh many days, according to the days that you abode there. To get through during the Feast of Tabernacles, I have to cover five chapters a day. I made it through one today. Let's see, it's, I've only got five minutes, and this is, I don't want to hurry it, it loses it. Let's just stop there for today, and, and I'll try, well, I laid a lot of background today. Uh, I wanted to do that, and that took quite a bit of time, but I think we needed to understand that if we're to grasp what this book is talking about, and we need to understand that we're on the edge of the same thing they were and that we need to pay attention to what is being told us here by Moses these many years later as we face the same conditions they faced. So let's stop there for today.